The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles, if you would, and open them to 1 John chapter 4. This is the familiar text that we've been using for these past few weeks to talk about biblical discernment. And a very short definition of biblical discernment is being able to tell the difference between right and wrong. It's the ability to think biblically in all areas of our life, whether we're talking about the moral choices that we make or whether they are the doctrinal choices of things that we are to believe. It's to decide how that you are going to order your life according to the Word of God and how you're going to apply God's Word to every area of your life. Another way that we could put this is to have a biblical worldview. That is, to shape the way that we think through the lens of Scripture. That the Scriptures are always going to be the guiding principle for our life. And so we look at everything that we do according to what the scripture says, and that's what gives us the direction to take. Now, obviously, in our society today, that uh, we've gotten most people, many people, churches and so forth, have gotten away from the Bible. And so the less that we know about the Bible, the less our worldview is going to be colored by scriptural principles. Uh, that is a big problem for us today. Our country has a much different worldview than when it started. And that's because of the difference in how, uh, how much knowledge that we have of the Word of God. Now, you go back to when our country began, and the original colonists that came here were very strict moral people. They were very religious people, and it was because of their religious principles and what they believed about interpretations of the Bible that drove persecution against them. And so they came to this country and... Uh, as they began here, their viewpoints of Scripture actually shaped the way that they uh, made their governments work. You look at documents that are taken from that time period, and you'll see that without question that there was a very strong Christian worldview in the way that they organized government. Uh, it was important what they believed about morality and about their theology, and they didn't really really uh, tolerate much difference in biblical interpretation. And so that's why you have Baptist preachers that were at times forced to leave and go other places. Sometimes they were put in jail. And the very kinds of things that, that we talk about here and some things that we'll talk about later are benchmarks of fellowship that allowed people to live together. And if you didn't meet these benchmarks of fellowship in your interpretations of doctrine, then you were, had to be separated, you were thrown out. Now, from a theological standpoint, that's a good thing, but from a political standpoint, it's a very bad thing because the Scriptures teach us that as much as we can to live peaceably with all men. So a lot of times that we have to deal politically uh, uh, with people that uh, have differences of doctrine than we have. Well, now we're about three to 400 years past the time of the original colonies, and much has changed. There is no enforcement of ecclesiastical laws, and God really didn't need enforcement of those anyway. But in the ensuing time, what's happened is that biblical knowledge has dramatically decreased, and along with that, the worldview has changed. 
Uh, biblical discernment is a thing of the past, and even Christians today have trouble with this because churches no longer stand strong on the doctrines of God's Word. And so today, it really doesn't matter a whole lot what your doctrine is, um, and eventually, if your doctrine doesn't control you, it will also begin to affect your morality. The church has changed as we get closer and closer to the world, and so as we are less theologically, then we become less morally. Now, we've discussed moral choices before, and so we're not going to go to that again, but instead, we're going to stick with the doctrinal issues and how that we do have to correctly discern doctrine, and that is something that will improve the picture overall. Now, the sad truth of it is that there are many Baptist churches that now have become very poor in doctrine, that they don't spend a lot of time dealing with the difficult doctrines of the faith, and we find that among independent fundamental Baptists that what's happened is these essential doctrines of what we believe aren't talked about very much anymore, and and so what they've done is to spend more time with things that are non-essentials and elevating non-essentials to uh, deal with things that are their preferential issues rather than dealing with these things in the Word of God that really are, are things that really need to be taught and paid very much attention to. And so they do. They elevate the, the non-essentials to essentials, and, and, and essentially that is poor doctrinal discernment. That is the wrong thing to do. So rarely are churches spending a lot of time on doc great doctrinal issues so that when we have visitors that come here, many of them haven't even heard some of the doctrines that we teach. And it's not as if I invented these things because these are doctrines that we find in old historic Baptist confessions of faith. We find them in church history being taught since the time of the apostles. And so there's just a complete breakdown in understanding of what these doctrines are because they haven't been taught. And then aside from that, there's a lot of misrepresentation about what we actually do believe. And that makes it difficult for us at times to uh, defend the doctrines that we believe when people are so badly misinterpreting them. A few years ago, I had one of the young people here from the church that I told him uh, that I hoped that he would continue his education in a good seminary after he'd finished with Bible college. And the reason that I told him that is because um, I don't think that many of the Bible colleges do much more than give their students a Bible survey. And they don't learn the great doctrines of the faith. And so they send them out and they start churches. They send these young men out to start churches. And the churches that they start don't know any more than the pastor knows because he hasn't been taught. And so we end up with weak churches that perpetuate the same wrong doctrines. So I remember when I first came to Berean that I asked to see the uh, statement of faith that we had for this church. And that's because I would never consider joining a church unless I understood what the doctrines were that were being taught and what, uh, what was believed. And so I was handed the doctrinal statement that consisted of one page and about 20 sentences. And I wonder, how do you reduce the great doctrines of the faith to 20 sentences? And say, how can you possibly do that? How can you teach the great doctrines of the faith that way? Well, as it turns out, if you don't teach much, you don't need much. So what we had to do was to get together and put together a comprehensive statement that reflected historical Baptist positions that we think are based upon the Scriptures and do that in more detail. So there isn't anything new that we're teaching here. 
The doctrine that we teach is not a new thing. It just happens to be new to many Baptists who haven't been taught these things in the past because they've laid down um, the fundamental doctrines to take up something else. Now, as we look at this text, we have a warning from John about false teachers. And that might be difficult for us at times because we wonder, how are we going to discern whether someone is actually telling us the truth when our pastors and teachers haven't taken time to teach us the truth? How are we going to know when we're being told the wrong doctrine? Well, that's some, an area that we have to be discerning in as, as well because uh, a Baptist church that doesn't teach anything but little platitudes is one that you need to stay away from. There isn't any significant spiritual growth in any place where the Word of God is not being taught. Now, I mentioned some time ago a couple that visited here uh, maybe a month or so ago, a couple of months ago, and uh, on this particular Sunday morning, I'd been preaching those sermons on the delusion of the devil. I'd been talking about Satan and about hell. And these people went out after church and they said, you know something, our pastor never preaches on those doctrines. This is somebody in a Baptist church in another part of the country who said, our pastor never preaches on these doctrines. And I would say to people like that, go find someone who does. We need to hear these doctrines. Well, this is what John says. 1 John 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world, hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard it that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. Now, if you, if you have a pencil, you might want to underline that, a pen or something. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. And there you have John's assertion that what he speaks is the truth because he is of God. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ, so he speaks the truth. This is his defense that what he says is the truth. And we'll get back to that in just a few minutes. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now the basic idea that we draw from this text is to be discerning about doctrine. Now John had a specific group of teachers that were on his mind. And these are people that had perverted the doctrine of the person and the work of Christ. And this was a heresy that was gaining foothold in the church. It was confusing people. And so John had to address this particular issue of discerning the different spirits. In 2 John, he very plainly said, If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed. That is essentially the same warning that Paul gave in the book of Galatians when he said, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. 
So the problem is that there were these false teachers in the church that claimed that they were speaking for God just as John spake for God. They claimed that they had new revelation of doctrine that was different from what the apostles taught, which meant that people in the church had to decide who is telling us the truth. Is it John or is it these other people who say that they have a revelation from God? Well, in the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul spent the first part of that book establishing his credentials about why he should be believed. And in the beginning of 1 John, John does the same thing. And his basis for saying, I am somebody who needs to be believed on this, is because I have seen Christ, I have been with Christ, I have touched him, I have heard him. And that was a very important thing. This says that John had the truth of Christ when these false apostles or these false preachers had never met Christ and heard from him at all. Well, false teaching was a problem then as it is now. And there are dozens of denominations that claim that they have new revelation that comes from God. And those interpretations don't match what the Bible says, what the apostles said. They don't match what we see in our historic doctrines or, or confessions of faith, I should say. They don't match that. They don't match what Baptists have interpreted for centuries as being the truth of the Word of God. Now, Paul gave this analysis of it in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. He said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now there a warning is given because false teachers are seducers. They are people that lead others away from the faith. Now the really important part of that verse is the identification of the source of all false teaching. Paul says it is the doctrine of the devil. So as we've discussed before, false doctrine has only one source. It is the devil. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. And so I don't feel any hesitation uh, that saying that charismatics or someone like that who claims to have a new revelation from God, they're actually teaching the doctrines of devils. Now, if these people are not teaching the same thing that we find in the Word of God, uh, they're not being led by the Holy Spirit. They're being led by the angel of darkness who appears as an angel of light. Well, I was thinking about this the other day. I was doing morning devotions, and I received an update from one of our former missionaries. And I'd just been reading in the Scriptures about false doctrine, and my heart was broken by this, that this missionary that we used to support had no, has no problem helping charismatic churches in India. Now, there are many Baptist missionaries who have come back to say how hard that it is to fight against the mess that charismatics have made in many foreign countries. And it's sad that a missionary who used to stand against that very thing would now help train those same people for the ministry. Now, I don't think that he's purposely promoting false doctrine, but the very least that you can say is he has dirt-poor discernment when it comes to what he should do in helping those people. So false doctrine only has one source. It comes from Satan. There's no way that we can make that pretty. We can't make it nicer than what it is. It comes from Satan. That's what the Word of God says. So we can't pretend that false doctrine is benign, that it doesn't hurt people, because it does. It leads people away from the faith. Well, we've looked at this in a couple of ways. Uh, I'm not going to go into the first way again, except to say just simply that there are degrees of error. Um, 
all error is bad, but there are some errors that do not seriously impact the soul. I think it's wrong what some people believe about the sovereignty of God as it comes to election and predestination. But because people don't understand that fully, that is not a doctrine that's going to affect the salvation of their soul. I think that the doctrine of baptism is a very important doctrine. But I'm not going to say that a Christian who hasn't had proper baptism can't be saved because that's not a salvational issue. It's a serious error, but it's not serious enough to affect someone's salvation. I think that the doctrine of the Lord's Supper is extremely important. And what we've done in that past uh, few years is to put more emphasis on our, on our observance of the Lord's Supper. But I can't say that a church who teaches open communion lets anybody saved or lost come and sit down on the Lord's table. I think it's a bad practice, but I can't say that that's something that's actually going to affect the salvation of souls. I think it's very poor doctrinal discernment to do it, but that does not affect a person's soul. And then when we think about the doctrine of the church, that's a very important doctrine. Baptism and the Lord's Supper have a lot to do with your viewpoint of the church. What you believe about baptism and the Lord's Supper largely colors what you think about the Lord's church. But if we get wrong on the doctrine of the church, as some do, where they teach a universal invisible church, I think that degrades the body of Christ. It's a bad thing to teach. But that's not something that impacts the soul as far as whether a person can go to heaven. But there are some doctrines that definitely do make a difference. They matter. You have to get them right. And the difference is the difference between heaven and hell. Now, I think that all doctrine is important. We ought to get all the doctrines that we can exactly right. But we really need to be concerned mostly about those that affect salvation. Now, the other doctrines will affect the way that we serve Christ. And we do need to get them right. But they won't affect our salvation. The ones that do... The ones that concern heaven and hell, we have to get right. We have to be sure that we get people on the right path to heaven because if we don't do that, there aren't any other doctrines that will ever matter. If you don't get that right, it doesn't matter what else you believe. You have to be right on this. So we want to make sure that we get people right on the doctrine of salvation. So the second part of this discussion concerns that, and that is doctrines that do seriously affect salvation and you have to get them right you have to believe them and there are some doctrines that are not particularly talking about the salvation of souls but somewhere in there salvation is going to come into the picture so we may not be exactly talking about the doctrine of salvation itself but in speaking of these other doctrines the question of salvation will come into play now we're looking at this under the heading of the doctrines engaged what, what doctrines are these that we need to talk about? Well, the first one we talked about is actually the doctrine of salvation, and that is soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation. That mainly concerns the way that we're justified with God. Are we justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or are we justified also by, not only by faith, but also by our works? Well, the way that we're justified is a non-negotiable. That is chief in understanding how is it possible to go to heaven. And if works are a part of justification, then what we've done is to ruin the principle of grace. And that would be a difference between heaven and hell. The next doctrine that we looked at is the doctrine of Christology. That is, what do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? What is his nature? What did he do for us? 
And that is actually the central question that we find here in 1 John 4. And that is, the Apostle John was dealing with Gnostics who did not have the Apostles' Christology. And they were actually teaching a different Jesus. Now what John emphasized is, this, is the hypostatic union, that is, Christ's deity and Christ's humanity united in one person. But these others, the Gnostics, had distorted that, and what they gave the people was a different Jesus, and a different Jesus is powerless to save. Because if you change the nature of Christ, then you change his ability to save. Now, if you drive west on 580 in the dark, just about Livermore, just a little bit past Livermore, you'll see this huge lighted cross on the side of the road, and there it says, Jesus saves. Now, it used to be that you would see those kinds of signs all across the country. When we traveled, we'd often see crosses with Jesus saves and those kinds of things. But as I've said, times have changed. But that huge cross there that is at Livermore really does state the crux of Christianity. A crux, as we say, that's a word that comes from cross. And uh, the crux is the most important thing. That's what we mean when you say the crux of something. It's the most important thing. And this is actually the most important thing about Christianity. And that is this simple thing. Jesus saves. And so if you pervert the doctrine of the person who saves, then you've just destroyed salvation. You have to get the right Jesus. Hebrews says that if we sin willfully after that, we have received the knowledge of the truth. There remains no more sacrifice for sin. That's simply telling us if you don't get Jesus right, if you don't accept him and believe him in the way that you should, you can't be saved. If you don't come by his cross, you can't be saved. You want to have the Jesus of the Bible to have the salvation that he offers. So Christology in that way affects soteriology as all essential doctrines will. If Jesus is not the virgin-born Son of God, if he is not equal to God in his nature, then he's not qualified to save. And you can try to twist around that truth all that you want, but you're going to end up with a different theory of the atonement, or you'll end up abandoning the atonement altogether. Because Jesus' satisfaction of the Father's justice depends on the fact that he is sinlessly perfect. And only as God, as the Bible presents him, could he be infinite and sinlessly perfect. And so if you mess with that perfection of Jesus as God by taking away his incarnation, taking away the virgin birth, then you have just done away with the penalty for sin or the way the penalty of sin can be paid. So all of that comes into view when you talk about a biblical Christology. If you accept what Mormons and JWs say about Jesus, then you don't have biblical Christianity any longer. And that's because you're, you, you've changed the Christology. And so what you're left with is a soul-damning doctrine. So our Christology then shapes our theology. Theology is the doctrine of God. And if we believe something that is false about God that it's false to the point that it seriously changes who God is, then we destroy salvation. If Jesus is God and we destroy who Jesus is, then we have destroyed salvation. And so to deny who God is is to change who God is, and there's not going to be any salvation in, in, a kind, in that kind of God who's been changed in that way, any more than if you took and carved an idol out of marble and began to worship it. You still have the same problem. You've got the wrong God. 
Now, I'm sure that you've heard, if you've read the news, watched the news uh, these past several months, there's been a huge controversy uh, at Wheaton College. Um, that, that I think it's been resolved now. But the controversy was this, that there was a professor in that Christian college who said or wanted to promote solidarity with Muslims. And so she said that Muslims also believe in Jesus and they serve the same God as we serve, only he just has a different name. Now, it's hard to believe that a Christian college that is significant as Wheaton has been over these many years would be embroiled in a controversy like this. Because at the very mention of something like this, whether this teacher is tenured or non-tenured, she should have been booted out immediately when she said that. Um, these are things that we don't have to talk about. These are things that we don't have to argue about. You go to 1 John 4, and there you see that she has identified a different Jesus, and when you do that, you say, that cannot and it will not stand. What Paul said was to reject heretics, and that ends the discussion. Well, the problem, though, is that people are non-discerning. Christians, many times, are non-discerning. Discerning, And then you pull into that mix people who aren't Christians who want to put in their opinion, which is what you get from the newscasters that are wondering, why in the world doesn't everybody just accept this, that Muslims believe in the same God that you believe in or Christians believe in? They don't have any idea who God is. They don't have any business to be in the argument to begin with. But you have them and you have Christians that aren't discerning. You have people that aren't Christians that are trying to get into the argument. And all we need to do is just go right back to the Bible and see what does God say about this issue. So they don't understand about Jesus. That it means they have a wrong Christology, which also means they have a soul-damning doctrine. Now, I noted in our last lesson that embedded into our soteriology are doctrines that affect Christology. They change who Jesus is. Now, one of those is the doctrine of apostasy. That's the doctrine that says that it's possible for a Christian to lose his salvation. If that is true, then it changes who Jesus is. Now, I would maintain that such a doctrine uh, produces a Jesus who is not a complete Savior, and so thus the wrong Christology affects soteriology. If salvation can be lost then that means that salvation is not wholly by God's grace. And that means that Christ's work has been nullified by man's sinful will. We have to be very careful what we do in our beliefs about the human will. Because in the process of trying to elevate man's will, we can change who Jesus is. We can change what he does and the proper design of God's work in salvation. Now, I want to move on from there. As you can see, these doctrines are intertwined. These are things that are hard to separate. But we do need to go on and mention other essentials, that uh, doctrines that are essential to salvation. Now, the next one is highly controversial, and this is the breeding ground of cults. And that is the doctrine of the Trinity. And along with the doctrine of the Trinity, we bring in another doctrine, which is pneumatology. Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I could do, I could take and separate these two and deal with it that way, and we'd spend a good deal of time doing that because the wrong understanding of who the Holy Spirit is just pervades the world today. And that's the basis for a lot of the 
uh, wrong doctrine, false doctrines on the gifts of the Spirit that's promoted by the charismatics. What you believe about the Holy Spirit will affect what you believe about the Trinity. So we'll just combine those and, and uh, we'll say that these are essential doctrines that without the proper understanding of them, you can't be saved. Now when I say that, I know that that might make a lot of people uneasy. Am I saying then that charismatics, because they have a wrong pneumatology, are not saved? Well, not in all cases, because people can become confused about this. But if their pneumatology is perverted to the point that it destroys the doctrine of the Trinity, then I would say, no, they can't be saved. You cannot mess up on the doctrine of the Trinity and be saved. Now, I'll return to that in just a moment. But first, I need to address this important question, and that is, does an unbeliever need to know all of the things that I've talked about in these past 36 messages in order to be saved? Well, if that was true, that would certainly make a gospel presentation more than five minutes, wouldn't it? Now we're talking about five months, and maybe still we wouldn't get to the bottom of it all. So no, I'm not saying that you have to know all of the things that I'm teaching here, but for sure you do have to understand that you can't be justified by your good works. And you have to understand that you come uh, by faith in Christ alone. That is just basic ground level stuff. However, the doctrine of justification has many facets to it. And you may not understand the doctrine of justification all that well. And there are many Christians that don't. There are many people that have been saved for years. And they don't know a lot about the doctrine of justification. I've talked to Bible students, uh, Bible college students that can't really give a good explanation of what justification is. And the reason they can't is because their teachers never thought that that was such an important issue to deal with. And so they didn't go into the many facets of justification. Well, it's even possible you may not have heard of the term justification, but you certainly would have to know the basic concept of it. Now, the explanation of these things are not going to be rejected by a true believer. Though someone might confuse him on some things, that when he finally does hear the truth, he will accept them. And if he doesn't accept them, then that's evidence that the Holy Spirit is not really in his heart that's leading him into truth. And so in John's terms, it would be what he said in the second chapter, in verse number 19, he said, They went out from us, but they were not all of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So a person who didn't believe would give evidence that he wasn't a true believer. He would reject the doctrines when he hears them. That kind of person doesn't stick around. What they do is they go join a cult, or they just leave religion altogether. So as we discuss the Trinity, is there something here in this doctrine that if we get it wrong, it radically changes the nature of God so that he isn't the God of the Bible. Well, you only have to look at the very first verse of the Bible to say yes to that question. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, you've got to do a little bit more study to see this. In the beginning, God. That is, in the beginning, Elohim. Elohim, that's God. And that is a Hebrew plural noun. El would be the singular. Elohim is the plural. So Genesis 1-1, starting out 
And the very beginning of the Bible tells us that there is a plurality in God. And yet we also have this Hebrew scripture in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Or hear, O Israel, Jehovah, our Elohim, is one Jehovah. Now there is a plurality in Jehovah. There is one God, but there is a plurality in him. Now I would venture to say that the Israelites didn't understand that very well. That's a difficult thing. They, this is a very peculiar thing. Somehow, God exists in more than one person, and yet he is one God. We don't understand more about that until we get into the New Testament. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. Now that's a perplexing thing, but it's true. Jesus said, I am Jehovah. Now you tell that to a JW, and he doesn't believe that. And the reason he doesn't believe it is because he has a different God. His God is not a trinity. And so thus Jesus cannot be, he says, the same as Jehovah. And so he gets stumped when he sees things in the scriptures where Jesus is praying to the Father. And then at the same time he says, I am the same as the Father. And quite frankly, we would be stumped by that too. Unless we teach the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe it because the Bible says that it's true. Jesus said that it's true. So we have a doctrine then that says that there are three distinct personalities in the Godhead, and yet they are all one God. Well, to circumvent the doctrine of the Trinity, there was a doctrine called modalism that was introduced, and that says that God is designated by three different names, and he manifests himself as one of those at different times, that he cannot manifest himself as all three at the same time. But that changes who God is, doesn't it? Some Pentecostals teach that the Holy Spirit is one form of God, that God is singular, and at times God manifests himself as the Spirit. That's called oneness Pentecostalism. That is a denial of the Trinity, which is a denial of the essential nature of God. So I don't have any qualms about saying that those who believe that have a different God. And so they can't be saved. And maybe they can confuse believers for a while. But there is nobody that's a true believer in Christ that can stay in that doctrine. But then you investigate a little bit further. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because the statement I made at the beginning. Can we say that charismatics are, not, are, are off on the... Uh, on these doctrines to the extent that they can't be saved. Well, oneness Pentecostalism is that kind of a doctrine. So what else do they believe? Well, you investigate a little bit further, and you find that oneness Pentecostalism says that salvation is by repentance and faith. Sounds good so far. By baptism. Now it's getting worse. By baptism in the Holy Spirit. Still worse. Speaking in tongues. Now we're getting really bad. And living a holy life. And they're not done. It goes on and on. And so, yes, I can say that there are some Pentecostals because of their false pneumatology are not real Christians. If you take the Holy Spirit out of the Trinity, then you've altered the biblical understanding of who God is. And then if you add to justification by faith, then you have destroyed the work of Christ in salvation. So you're wrong all the way around. Now, the JWs have a little bit different variation on this. Uh, they say that the Holy Spirit is not God. 
He is a force that comes from God. And so neither is the Holy Spirit God. Jesus is not God. So therefore, God is not a trinity. But the trinity, of course, has been the orthodox position of the church going back to the time of the apostles and what Jesus said. I mean, you look in Scripture and you see that the sign-off of the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul did not end that letter without giving full credit to the trinity of God. He said, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. And then likewise, the Trinity is taught in the most significant rite of the Christian religion. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Baptize them in the name of, not in the names of, And that's because Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are one God. Now, there we're dealing with salvation itself. This is the commission about salvation. And so you change the commission, then what have you done? You've just destroyed salvation. He gives us the way that people are saved. Now, let's look at uh, another. We'll just get a start on this one tonight. We're getting close on time, so we'll finish this in the next message, which is actually middle of April before we'll get there. So you try to remember what I'm going to say now. This, 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 this one is bibliology. Bibliology. Bibliology is the study of the Bible, or it is the doctrine of the Bible. Now here we're not necessarily talking about individual doctrines that are in the Bible, but the Bible itself. What do we believe about the Bible as a book, as the revelation of God? Now at stake here is the, the question of the Bible's authority. And, and I'll say first that rejection of the Bible's authority is going to affect doctrines that are in the Bible. Well, certainly it's going to affect that. How we receive information from God is detrimental to our worldview. Then a second word that you need to know in conjunction with this is epistemology. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. Here we would say, how do we acquire knowledge of God? How do we receive knowledge of God? Now that's certainly going to color our thinking about the basis of what we believe. Why do we believe what we believe? It all depends on how that we receive knowledge of God. Now in 1 John chapter 4, John is not concerned in, in this part of the scriptures that anybody in the church would be teaching that there is no God. I mean, that, that's so utter foolishness to people then. They didn't even think about that too much. You didn't talk about whether there is no God. But rather, he's thinking about people that are in the church who claim that they had revelation from God. And so the question is, where did they get that revelation? Or what is the authority for the revelation that they said that they had been given? Now, this is what John is dealing with here. And uh, at issue then is that source of revelation. Where do they get the authority for what they believe? Now, we remember this, that the Bible was not completed at the time that John wrote 1 John. It was mostly completed. Many of the New Testament letters were done. 1 John was probably written near the end of John's life. And so when he finished 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, the Revelation, those books end the New Testament canon. So the question is, is there another source of revelation other than what's found in the Old Testament And then in the books that were done in the New Testament, 
And then is there something that's going to be added after John had completed the canon? Is there something external to what's been finished in the canon? Well, false teachers said, we also have a revelation from God. And if that's true, then what they said must be of equal authority to what John said. Well, we know this, that if these two things turn out to be at odds with one another, both of them can't be true. God is one God. There's only one truth. God never contradicts himself. So either we have to throw out what John said, or we have to throw out what these other teachers said. Now, in the beginning of the letter, John did assert that he'd heard directly from Jesus. None of these other teachers had heard from Jesus. And so in a in, in historical time context, that would be a very important thing. Uh, John's personal knowledge of Christ, of having been with him, trumps anything that anybody else would say. Anything that's to the contrary, uh, it's going to trump that. And if what this person says, I have received a revelation from God, and it's not something new, then why do you need it? Uh, you don't have to listen to somebody else. We've already got the revelation that God gives it's, if it's the same thing. If it's different, then, of course, we have a problem. Now, in essence, then, John was insistent. This is why I had you underline that part of, your, that part of, the, of the Scripture. John was insistent that the word that was received by him and other apostles and those who had contact with Jesus... Certified companions of Jesus, this is the only word of God. Now, the exception to that would be the Apostle Paul, whom the apostles agreed uh, was also to be counted as a true apostle of Christ. Now, understand this, that the recognition by John and the other apostles that Paul was indeed a true apostle of Christ had no bearing on the fact of whether he was. They didn't make him a true apostle of Christ. He received that authority from Christ himself. Now let me just show you that for just a second. Let's turn over to the first chapter of Galatians. And uh, I mentioned earlier, the first uh, couple of chapters of Galatians are spent establishing Paul's authority for the instructions that he gave in that letter. And in Galatians chapter 1, in verse number 15, he said, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Now what Paul is beginning to set out here is that his authority came directly from Christ. This is why he said, I didn't go to Jerusalem. I didn't go there for the purpose of getting approval from the apostles. And in verse number 18, he says, it's not, it wasn't until three years after he had been converted that he went to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 2, in verse number 6, he added here what seems to be a sarcastic comment that's directed towards those who disputed his authority. Galatians 2, 6, he says, But of these who seem to be somewhat, whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. For they who seemed to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. Now that's quite an interesting statement because there uh, Paul is referring to the original apostles. They seemed to be something. Now what he's referring to is 
their recognition that they are apostles of Christ, others' recognition of who they were. They seem to be something. They are the respected holy apostles. And yet he said that they offered him nothing by way of authority. No person gave him his authority but Christ. And the apostles accepted that that was true. And so when John talks about having received the word directly from Christ in 1 John, he would be including Paul, just as Peter included him in 2 Peter 3.16, and said what Paul wrote is the word of God. Well, then you have the rest of the New Testament. You have one book that's written by an unknown author, and I strongly suspect the apostles knew who the author of that book was. We're talking about the book of Hebrews. And... Uh, we're going to look at that maybe in our next uh, Sunday morning series. And then in addition to Hebrews, you have the Pauline epistles, of course. And in addition to that, you have the general epistles of, James, of Jude and James. And those are written by half-brothers of Jesus. So there is the extent of what was considered to be authoritative. So this leaves us then with the 39 books of the Old Testament. Those were approved by Jesus as being the truth. He quoted from them. And then you have the 27 books of the New Testament, and that is the end of God's revelation to man. But of course, there were some then, as there are now, who said, well, that's not all that God said. God has also spoken to us, and this is what God said to us. And you know what that is? That is not bibliology. That is not biblical epistemology. That is demonology. When someone says, God spoke to me, too. Now, that problem exists today. All of the cults have their own scriptures, uh, things that are written by their prophets. They say these things are equal to or they are greater than the 66 books of the canon. So the Mormons have their uh, Book of Mormon. They have another testament, they say. Then you have uh, the JWs with the New World Translation, the Watchtower, and so on. And I think that what we can do, without too much trouble, we throw out those perversions. That, that's not a big issue with us. If you read the Book of Mormon, you'll recognize very quickly it's pure, pure plagiarized stupidity. That's pretty much what the Book of Mormon is. But the most troubling aspect of new revelation is what comes from those who claim to be Orthodox Christians. These would be people in the charismatic movement, among others, who regularly claim that they get information from God. They say that God speaks to them. Some of them even claim that they see God from time to time, that he appears to them and tells them what he wants them to know. So they receive information from dreams and visions, and they have a word from God, which interestingly many times is not an infallible word, but they say they have received word from God. So at stake here is this all-important issue, and that is where do we get the authority for what we teach? Can we take our authority from someone who says, I have new revelation, I have something that God spoke to me, and this is what God wants me to tell you. You hear that regularly on television. You hear that on TBN all the time. God gave me a word of knowledge. God has a teaching that he wants me to give you. God showed this to me. You hear it all the time. Now, let me say another word about this. Uh, well, first, maybe I might say this. this. This is the kind of thing that if you get wrong, you're going to have the wrong worldview. You'll have the worldview of the cults. That's where you're going to end up. You have a completely wrong worldview. But then let me finish by saying this, that 
um, there are many that have opinions about God. They have a definite, a definite idea of who they think that God is and who they think that Jesus is and what he would do. And so they assume that God thinks like they think. And so they'll tell you what they believe. And so you ask them, well, where do you get that authority? What, why do you believe this? Why do you have this particular opinion? Sometimes they'll say to you, well, it's in the Bible. And you say, well, where in the Bible? Well, I don't know, but it's in there somewhere. And that's because they have in their mind what they think Jesus said and what he meant. And they have really no idea what Jesus said or meant. And then others aren't too much concerned about whether it's actually in the Bible. That doesn't matter to them. They have an opinion. And their authority for their opinion is them. I believe this because I believe it. And you say, where is that authority? Well, we have to have an authority for what we believe. Uh, the way we get to heaven, what we know about God, we have to have some authority for that. So what is our authority? That's the thing that we have to discern. That's what's going to shape our view of God and give us the right worldview. What is our authority for what we believe? And of course, we maintain that authority is only God's Word. Only the 66 word, uh, books that we find in our Bible. That is all. That's all. The sum total of our authority. And that's what we stick to. I've got more to say about that. We will take it up the next time in three or four weeks, five weeks, whatever it is, uh, in the month of April. So hang on to your information about bibliology and we'll come back to that at a later time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, the truth that we find in the word. And Lord, help us that we would understand that we, we can't take anything that anybody says unless they have authority that comes from the scripture. And in this church, we expect nothing less from anyone. Try every word that's spoken by the word of God. Find out if it's true. Search the scriptures to see if it's true. And Lord, that's where we want to take our authority. Help us to be that kind of church that always sticks to the word as our authority. Bless us tonight, Lord. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.